our prisons. You stare. Well, it's no other way to hold an individual. Oh, well, let's say, let's put it this way. It's no way for a small knot of armed men to hold a huge crowd of armed men. There's no other way besides terror, fear, you know, uh, threats, uh, terrorism, brutality. The whole thing is, is based on, uh, on fear. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The Adelanto Ice Processing Center is an immigrant detention center just outside Los Angeles that's funded by the Trump administration and operated for profit. Detention center staff members have been spraying HTQ Neutral, a toxic disinfectant labeled for industrial use only, on center residents inside the poorly ventilated facility. HTQ Neutral is a poisonous, ammonia-based chemical that's being sprayed inside the detention center despite warnings on the label that it should be used around people only when they're outdoors, not in confined spaces. Detainees allege that the chemical is being sprayed directly on them, even though the product's label warns that exposure to the eyes can cause, quote, permanent eye damage, end quote. Inhaling it can cause lung damage, breathing difficulties, and asthma. Detainees have reported rashes, nosebleeds, nausea, headaches, and breathing difficulties after the spraying, which occurs as often as every 15 to 30 minutes. The U.S. Bureau of Justice Statistics doesn't keep an accurate record of prisoners killed by corrections officers, but it estimates that between the years 2012 and 16, some 128 state and federal prisoners died from homicide or accidents per year. The agency doesn't distinguish between deaths by prison staff and prisoners. The estimated number of deaths is probably an undercount, since corrections departments conduct many investigations of suspicious prison deaths internally. Corrections officer violence has included gassing a prisoner as he begged for help, killing an inmate for speaking out about sexual abuse, and scalding an inmate to death in the shower. Prison officers' violent actions often go unreported, and prison staff who complain about fellow officers' conduct face threats and harassment. Corrections officers are rarely held accountable for their actions through civil lawsuits or criminal prosecution. As Heather Schoenfeld, associate professor of sociology at Boston University wrote, quote, sadistic, violent, and other unconscionable acts by corrections officers against people in prison don't provoke the same public outrage as police murders of people in their homes and communities, end quote. Although research on the role race plays in wrongful convictions has been limited, studies show that black people are seven times more likely than white people to be wrongfully convicted of murder. Black exonerees spend an average of 10.7 years in prison before they're released, as compared to 7.4 years for white exonerees. In 55% of cases in which black people were exonerated for murder charges, police misconduct was involved, as compared to 33% of cases in which white people were wrongfully convicted. 
The rate of mistaken eyewitness identifications in cases of wrongful sexual assault convictions is 79% for innocent black defendants and 51% for their white counterparts. Such identification errors can occur as a result of biased lineups and other flawed procedures that law enforcement use in the identification process. The rush to judgment and presumption of guilt are prevalent in cases where the accused is black. These racial disparities have serious consequences, especially in death penalty cases. 42% of defendants on death row are black. Madalena McNeil, a 28-year-old resident of Salt Lake City, is alleged to have bought paint for and pushed a police officer during a July 9th protest. She faces life in prison after being charged with criminal mischief with a gang enhancement, which increases McNeil's alleged crime to a first-degree felony. Kent Morgan, a legal expert, says he's rarely seen the gang enhancement law used in his 30 year of practicing law, and that it's usually used when one known gang asserts superiority over another known gang. The law broadly defines the term gang as committing a crime by two or more people. The prosecutor in the case says he hadn't seen anyone sent to prison for life for a property crime, but that he has to screen charges on the basis of evidence and follow the statutes the legislator sets. The Alliance for a Better Utah stated that McNeil is a well-known organizer through Salt Lake City COVID mutual aid, ensuring that protesters have food, water, and masks. Today, August 21st, is the 49th anniversary of George Jackson's murder by San Quentin Guards. Jackson was a leading theorist and militant in the prisoners' movement, which had emerged over the previous decade in close relationship to the rise of black power. His books, Soledad Brother and Blood in My Eye, remain touchstones for prisoners' discussions across the U.S. Jackson famously organized within a collective of other courageous prison rebels. Two of these men, Flita Drumgo and John Clochette, were accused alongside Jackson of killing a guard in 1970, and the three of them became known as the Soledad Brothers and were the focus of a mass defense campaign. But Jackson extended this group rather than let their collective be defined by the state. The term Soledad Brothers, uh, get this clear, the term Soledad doesn't apply to us three only. You understand? It applies to all those brothers down in Soledad who've been making moves and who, who are working on, uh, on the idea that uh, concentration camps won't work on black folks and oppressed people here in the United States. That we're just not going for it. Uh, we're together. We're all together. All our cases together. And uh, when you say Soledad Brother, You'll have pictures on the wall of not just the three uh, original Soledad brothers, but uh, all others who've fallen in the line. You understand? And uh, it should be worked from, from there. Soledad brother means all those there in Soledad who participate. And we're trying to break down that thing there. Pursue our present goal, you know, the proof of, uh, the proof that it won't work on us. In the future, when I get out, we go to a new level. That means liberation of political prisoners. Long live the guerrilla. He stressed this point, the importance of rank and file and of building a united movement. We are not acting individually inside the, the prisons here. We're all together. And uh, we have perfect discipline and we have uh, rank and file. The rank and file is necessary. You'll never get anywhere without it. And uh, I, I think that the failure of the, the last 
50 years. The, the failures that allowed fascism to ver- emerge right out in front was like, well, we can contribute to lack of discipline and lack of the ability to create uh, a, a policy out of uh, a thousand conflicting uh, opinions and subjective interpretations of what is. Here is Harry Belafonte recounting George Jackson's farewell to his mother days before his assassination by the state of California on August 21, 1971. A young man by the name of George Jackson in San Quentin wrote this letter to his mother three days before he was murdered. Harry Belafonte, performer and human rights activist. It was on the occasion of her birthday. Dear Mama, I hope this year's birthday finds you well. I would like to be able to give you things and take you places, but I've been unfortunate and slow learning. But I've learned well. Perhaps next year, I'll be able to give you a villa in Tanzania. On Saturday, August 21st, 1971, Soledad brother George Lester Jackson was shot to death by guards in the prison yard at San Quentin. If they kill me, Mama, he had written home in a letter, I'll just be dead, but I'll never kiss their feet. That Saturday afternoon, Georgia Jackson had rushed to San Quentin to learn of her son's fate guard at the gate said, last year we killed one of your sons, and and today we killed another. If you aren't careful, you'll have no sons left. Georgia Jackson said to the guard, I have sons throughout the world, wherever people are fighting for freedom. And now, we finish the conversation we heard last week, in which Bella Bravo speaks to Jean-Darka Corti and Jared Shanahan. Corti is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, and also works with Face to Face Knox, a campaign to restore in-person visitation to Knox County detention centers. Shanahan is an assistant professor of criminal justice at Governor's State University. Together, they've researched and written several pieces, including the article they reference in this conversation and last week's conversation, Prelude to a Hot American Summer, about the George Floyd uprising. Today, we share the final part of their conversation about the current moment and the impact of the coronavirus on the incarcerated population. You can hear the first part of their conversation on our website. You've both honed in on this tension of the moment where we have police brutality and this movement against it, but it's within this container of class struggle. So everything surrounding the movement really does seem to put a lot of pressure on it. And that pressure is created through the, as you said, like the widening inequity in our society. And One of the things that I found so helpful about your article was that you point out that the tactics um, have largely stayed in the street. They've been incredibly 
contentious uh, with police. Obviously, the, the pinnacle of that for this movement thus far has been the burning of the third precinct, which it's my understanding is the first police station to burn in the United States during a street protest. And at the same time, um, you have these demands starting to form about shifting police budgets to, we can call them uh, social welfare, social reproduction, but it's really to the things that people are like, this is what I need to live. I need shelter. I need food. I need to know that I'm going to have my health provided for in some way. And I'm going to be able to have access to doctors and medical care, clean air, clean water, etc. So we have this tension that feels very clear. And there's a militancy um, when you're actually in the street that Jared, you pointed to. And that's a big shift from what happened in the first wave of the BLM movements. The, probably the starkest moment for me, because I was in Minneapolis during that last weekend in May was I was standing at the vigil site for George Floyd. And I was there when they announced Derek Chauvin's arrest and a man started running through the crowd saying one down three more. And there is a level of uh, confrontation in that watchword, in that phrase. Uh, It's not we're going to prosecute him. We One has been arrested. There's going to be some sort of justice. It's we got him. And there's a, a level of threat that's really important, I actually think, in that slogan. That means like that the people are coming together. There is some sort of collective power that's understood and that this person is not going to get away. And that doesn't mean prosecution necessarily. That doesn't mean arrest, but it's just there's going to be a big shift in how police who kill are handled from here on out. And so there's this tension that's building between class and it's manifesting in a militancy. And so you point out in your article that the tactics in the street have yet to shift to the means of production. And this rebellion, you say, is doing necessary work to challenge the color line in American society and lay the foundation for future offenses against capital. And I was wondering if you could talk about what you think that shift from the street to production could look like and what you think is the future for these next few months. Your article is called The Prelude. So what's coming up next? So I think it's a prelude because I think while many people are like, oh, the protests have maybe petered out, there, we're not at the height of the protest. COVID continues to rage on. Unfortunately, police murders will not end, right? Um, I just saw a recent video of a police police officer, I forgot where it was, but basically pulling a family, you know, targeted the wrong car, right? Pulled out an entire family, held them against the ground, right? And it was taped. So we know that police brutality, racist police violence is going to continue. COVID rages on. I think there's other areas of American social life that are deeply impacted by the virus now even more, like the reopening of schools, right? So we could imagine kind of other flashpoints emerging, right, that could potentially link up with some of the um, like ideas and notions and experience that has been generated out of the Black Lives Matter protests, right? So I think in that sense, I'm optimistic in that I don't really see that protests are just going to end anytime soon, right? They may, everybody's taking a break, but I think, you know, we could kind of certainly see 
them continuing. And I, I think the defund to that degree, I think it does signal something greater, right? I think it signals the fact that liberal reforms of police are not enough, right? Like demanding body cameras, all of the things that the first wave of BLM demanded is, is seen as not enough, right? So I think that's a really important moment. I don't think that's something that we could just like kind of forget about, right? It's like, so people are not really interested anymore in just those reforms. They may still be interested in them, right? But they are not at the forefront of what people want. So I think in that sense, like people's ideas of let's reduce the police and enlarge in these other areas of social life that we know are terrible because also the virus has shed a light on all of them, I think speaks to, to kind of the some of the possibilities that we can imagine. Yeah, and I mean, this might sound a little bit far-fetched, but hey, four months ago, all of this would have sounded far-fetched, you know? I think we mentioned briefly in the piece how important it will be in the coming months and years to link up with these kinds of logistics networks um, that crisscross um, American society. Um, and I would say especially with Amazon workers um, who staged a number of important uh, workplace actions um, in the early days of COVID, um, which, you know, has largely been forgotten and eclipsed by this massive rebellion. But it's, it's very impressive that you have folks, you know, in these precarious jobs willing to stand up. Um, and so one of the tactics that emerged in the earliest days of the rebellion was, of course, um, expropriation. You know, just knocking down the front door of the store and just taking the things that you need. And just imagine if we what we could accomplish um, in terms of sustaining a long-term uh, rebellion if we were able to bring that same philosophy to a logistics network um, and just begin to piece together the elements by which we could actually uh, reproduce ourselves, provide a dignified life for our families and neighbors and so forth, provide basic reproductive services for people who need them. Maybe we could figure out how to provide education for young people that's not sending them into a death trap for them and their teachers. Or maybe we could say, you know what, actually fourth grade is not very important right now. You can do fourth grade next year. We have a whole world to build. I mean, I don't know if anybody can seriously argue that they remember anything from third or fourth grade, but and definitely not something that would justify risking your life to learn. And so these are some of the horizons that emerge in the, in the distance when you start to put class struggle on the menu uh, in the way that the defund demand is done, in the way that the, the widespread expropriations have done. And I would say generally just the, the culture of lawlessness that has characterized the rebellion, the rejection of respectability, the rejection of compliance with all of these ridiculous and arbitrary demands that are placed on people the rejection of the binary between good and bad protester and all the rest. I mean, the, the shift in conventional wisdom in the United States over the last three or four months um, cannot be understated, and it points us in some very interesting places. And I think that will be, while we can imagine some kind of recuperation and co-optation, and I think people are, like, talking about it, thinking about it, writing about it, right, um, you know, there, there has been this energy that has been slowly building up, right? I think that's something I kind of want to mention is that while, like, this moment was particularly militant, it could not have been built outside of what has been happening in American social life in the past, like, eight years, right? So it's like, 
the you know murder of Trayvon Martin in the first BLM, uh, Me Too, No Dapple. I mean, it's like it seems like slowly, like all of the things that have held America together, right, are like coming apart little by little, right. So I think it's kind of like really important to to see that, you know, can we imagine any of those things going back in the bottle? I I would wager and say no, right. That's going to be a very difficult thing to put back. Um, and I think most importantly, the pandemic for like obviously destroying so many lives, but it's also shedding light in all of the the ways in which folks are connected to each other, right? And all the ways in which these struggles do come together, right? So it's I think it's it's almost more intuitive for people to think through, you know, how BLM relates to like the school reopenings, right? Um, you know, if it wasn't the pandemic, I think those things will be more difficult for people to connect, right? But Somehow the pandemic could create the conditions for those connections, right? And also incarcerated folks. I think one of the most interesting things to come out of this wave, uh, um, especially for folks listening to Kyla, you know, it's is the fact that decarceration, which was so much so this like concern with money, uh, a concern by Democrats and Republicans to save money on mass incarceration, which has become this huge expenditure for the state is now something that local activists are picking up and saying, you know what, like jails equal death. You know, jails are no place for the pandemic, right? And, you know, and I think their interesting connections could be made, right? More and more people are talking about the number one hotspot for COVID in the country has been prisons, has been jails, right? Decarceration is no longer about like the fiscal aspects of it, right? But it's about like human dignity. So I think it brings back like a really important organizing aspect to um, the struggle against mass incarceration, that I think it's a really excellent development that, you know, people should continue to kind of uh, struggle and fight with, right? Um, because it, it gives humanity to people, right? It doesn't make them just like this dollar concern, which is what the state kind of emphasizes. I just want to uh, reiterate a point that Jana made. This is not over. And there's a lot of cities where it's just as hot as ever. And I know that there's a lot of kind of you know, hand wringing um, among some of our comrades about oh the, the it's been it's been incorporated oh it's been co-opted you know um, we we edit a, a publication called Hardcrackers we ran a great piece by a reader recently um, a fellow by the name of Tim Bruno um, and he argued basic basically that this is a self fulfilling prophecy if you de if you declare that the, the first three days of the rebellion were the you know, that was the, the the substantive moment and everything else is the afterglow, right? It sounds great, you know, it sounds very dramatic, one of the, you know, very bold statement. But in reality, you know, you're selling short the actual work of building social relationships and solving problems in concert that deserves the name politics. It is very difficult to sustain um, and even even a tiny association of human beings over even a short amount of time. That work that's coming out um, of this rebellion is ongoing, and it's it's not always sexy, and we don't get to burn a precinct every day. But you know, it's 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 still happening, and the crisis is still happening. Convictions just begun, and COVID's not going anywhere. This economic uh, spiral is not going anywhere, and I don't think it's helpful to think about this crisis using the same paradigm that we learned from previous crises. I mean, this is this is something truly unlike anything we've seen in our lives. And I think we need to be attuned to its novelty. I completely agree. And I think, again, like part of the role of 
movements to is to continue those struggles, right? So I think what will be interesting to see in the next month, in the next year, is how will this defund demand shape in tandem with potential flashpoints, right? Like reopening, fights against evictions, fights against decarceration, right? But I think the defunding stuff, I mean, you know, a lot of cities are going to be, are dealing with fiscal crises, right? Um, they are going to be in huge debt to the federal government, right? And I doubt the federal government will be bailing out any state, right? So these will create like important tensions in the lives of everyday people, right? And we should be kind of attuned to how folks will act, right? Um, and I think people that have been doing some of the defund, people who have been organizing, you know, that's stuff to like really get involved with, right? Because as Jared said, we can't we can imagine that evictions, uh, foreclosures, the reopening, right? Teachers and students being sacrificed, um, you know, is going to be, is going to kind of perhaps wage another round of protests that could be really, really important um, as well. So I think for sure it's not over. And I think there's actually a lot, a lot of potential, um, especially the last thing I'll say as, as kind of the, the Trump, Trump's insistence that he will bring back law and order falls on deaf ears, right? I mean, th that kind of the weight that the law and order rhetoric had in the past, in the 70s, no longer has the same weight. And I think that's a really important um, thing to recognize. And as Jared said, I think that what we should be doing is to really kind of paying attention to the moment we live in. Of course, understanding history and understanding what's different or similar, but there are particularities to the moment that we live in that are going to shape the next 10 years, right? And I think we should figure out what those things are, right? And hopefully this conversation has helped people kind of start putting those pieces together. Yeah, I think that the absence of law and order that I really like how you put it, the law and order rhetoric now falls on deaf ears. I think that that really uh, centers the importance of youth right now. I think every article that I've read about the movement um, has touched on how loud, how vocal, how at the forefront, at the front line youth have been. And it seems like the disposition of youth today is not uh, the same as in 2008, um, which was this the other kind of like parallel that we've seen a lot uh, as like an economic crisis that bottomed out American society. I was a youth during that time and <laughs> what everyone was thinking was no future, no job. Everything kind of felt like a dead end. Um, and it's been incredibly heartening to see youth just zone out when they hear the law and order call and instead say jails equal death. And in an absence of a state of a future offered by the state and capital, Instead, the youth are saying, we're going to do what you said, Jared, and we have a whole world to build. Yeah. And I think also the, the language of invest in Black futures, I think that is really important, too. And I think, it again, it speaks to that imaginary, right, that I think is really important, too. We'll have links to some of their articles on our website. We're grateful to the Freedom Archive for providing these audio records of George Jackson's speech and of Harry Belafonte, which is featured on their important audio documentary on Jackson, titled Prisons on Fire. Many more materials can be found at freedomarchives.org.
please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.